Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, and that was the first time that I realized that my English accent was actually an accent that made me into in many people's eyes, the occupier, even though my parents had nothing to do with the military. At that particular time, it wasn't a great thing to have. And so I became someone who talked less and listened more. The man who stayed over and brought a camp bed to my flat one night because he complained that my mattress was uncomfortable. (laughs) And... uh, so I rolled off after our moment of intimacy and just like slept, slept on this camp bed that he then rolled up the next morning and left. And we broke up shortly afterwards. But actually, it is true what people say, that every single one of those failed dates was an exercise in data acquisition. Female anger can be used in so many ways to change the world that we live in and that's why we've been taught to be scared of it and that's why we've been taught to be uncomfortable with it so it taught me a lot writing that chapter and now I'm furious all the time Hello and welcome to How I Find My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed. This is the podcast where we go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers grow up to become such great and unique communicators. And my guest today is Elizabeth Day. She's a best-selling writer. She's a renowned chart-topping podcaster, of course. Her four novels include Home Fires and The Party, her 2019 book, and her podcast series, How to Fail, Everything I've Learned from Things Going Wrong, has connected so powerfully with readers and listeners. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am so flattered to be on this podcast because you've had such incredible guests, so I don't feel worthy. Well, no, no, you're worthy. I always think it must be strange for someone who's a really renowned podcaster to find herself on the other side of the mirror as such. So thank you for being game. I want to take you back then to the fact that you're ethnically English, but you were raised very much in Northern Ireland in the the very late 80s and the 1990s. Take me, in a sense, first into your home. What was it like? What were you like growing up there? Such a good question, because I really do think that childhood is the key to so much of who I now am. So to cut a long story short, in 1982, my father, who was until recently a surgeon, he's now retired, he got a job in the north of Ireland, just outside Derry. And there was a slight family connection in that his mother had been born there. So we weren't completely going into the unknown. But we went there. 1982 was a very interesting time in that... It was the height of the Troubles. 
This is London Day. The police are now a quarter of a mile inside the bogside area. This here is Harvey Street. They've been moved in here after sustaining for some two hours a hail of stones from people on the bogside side of the barricades. You know, troubles, I think, is quite a sort of mitigating word for something that was really a civil war. And I went there with a very English accent, which I never lost, as you can hear. And so even though at the age of four, my home was very much Northern Ireland, I never sounded as though I belonged there. And to answer your question, the home that I remember was one that we moved into shortly after arriving, and it was actually in the middle of the countryside. So it was a half hour drive from Derry. And we were very close to the village of Claudie, where a few years previously there'd been a terrible uh, car bomb and various people had died, including one young girl. And I wasn't that aware of, of all of that stuff happening on the political scene. I was aware of how it affected my daily reality and that there were checkpoints on my way to school and there were often bomb scares that would empty the shopping centre. But my home was quite removed from all of that. We lived opposite a river. Um, We had a kind of uh, a sort of overextended hill in the background, which we called the Wrath. And my father was very, very keen to sort of really ingrain himself into Irish life. And so we got a donkey and some sheep. He then populated the wrath. And some of my early memories are of trying to shear sheep by hand with a with a pair of shears. And my older sister and I would be deputised to be glorified sheepdogs and sort of run around the field and try and gather up the sheep. So in a way, it was this curious mixture of the innocence of the countryside alongside the reality of what was happening in the cities. Oh, that's an always remarkable time to be to be living there. What was school like for you at that time then? With your English accent. So <laughs> school was a tale of two halves. My primary school was really lovely. And I think that's because it was quite a small school. It was in Derry, but there were six people in my entire year group. And at that age, children are a lot more accepting of difference, I think. So I never really felt like an outsider at my primary school. But when I went to secondary school, I went to a school in Belfast, which not only was Belfast then the nucleus of a lot more terrorism and there were all sorts of bomb scares happening at that time but it was further away from my home so I was a weekly boarder there and it was a very difficult time that because when you're an adolescent that is when children really start to notice difference and that's when you're longing to belong to a tribe because there's a sort of safety in numbers and I found it tremendously difficult and I I, I, that was the first time that I really did feel like I didn't belong even though I had grown up there for most of my formative years and I remember a few experiences I remember a boy in my year being overheard saying that he would he would fancy me if only I weren't English and um, various things like that that were really crushing at the time and alongside that because I'd grown up in the countryside I was quite a sort of naive child in many ways I, I was I was the opposite of cool you know I had a kind of fluorescent orange rucksack that I wore on both shoulders which was very untrendy at the time I had no sense of kind of music taste or I, I the only thing I watched on television was neighbors and and I came from this kind of countryside idyll into the center of this very urban city and I just felt really out of place. And yeah, and that was the first time that I realised that my English accent was actually an accent that made me into, in many people's eyes, the occupier, even though my parents had nothing to do with the military. At that particular time, it wasn't a great thing to have. And so I became someone who talked less and listened more. And I actually now am very grateful for that, because I do think that 
that made me into an observer of people and that made me in turn into a writer. One of the things I found remarkable about your life is that at a very young age in 1992, as you were 12 or 13, your parents sent you on a kind of Russian exchange to Novgorod, which is a pretty industrial city. (laughs) And you were staying with a woman who was clearly working as a prostitute to make ends meet, bringing men back to the flat. And you spoke almost no Russian at the time. It actually sounds a really frightening experience. What impact did it have on you? I mean, hearing you say it like that does make me realise how sort of freakishly odd that was. I mean, it had a massive impact. And I think like many things that are painful or difficult at the time, I sort of rubbed it out of my own personal history. And I didn't think about it until a few years ago when I remember having a conversation with my friend Olivia. And it came up that I used to speak fluent Russian. She asked how that was. And I said, oh, well, I got sent to Russia when I was 12 for a month. And she was like, what? (laughs) And that was the first time that I'd encountered someone else's reaction, which made me realise, oh, that was quite a strange thing. And, And it did really affect me. So how that happened was at my school in Belfast, it was the only school in Ireland that offered Russian as a subject to study. And because I was quite a sort of counterintuitive child, I thought, well, if it's the only school, then I must absolutely do it. And no one in my family had studied Russian, so it seemed sort of quite an appealing thing. So I started learning Russian, and I was a year ahead of myself at the time. So that was another reason why I didn't really fit into the school, because I was also a massive nerd. And when I was very unhappy at that school, I left halfway through the year. And I ended up getting a scholarship to a boarding school in England. But it meant that I had these six months free, because I was going to go back and re-study the year that I should have been in and I thought in my head well this is great I'll have six months of lying in and watching neighbours and um, just hanging out at home and reading books but my parents rightly had different ideas and one of their ideas was to get my kind of language skills up to speed so they sent me to Russia they attached me to another school exchange And I went with a group of sort of 17-year-old boys and ended up on the top floor of this tower block in Novgorod in 1992. Yeltsin had just taken over. There'd been a kind of putsch where he had taken over power. And I just remember arriving in the dead of night to this apartment and meeting this woman who I'd never met before, speaking a tiny bit of Russian that I'd learnt at school And I remember being shown around the flat and I really wanted to make a good impression and to show how grateful I was that they were putting me up. You know, there were these people who really had very little. And I kept saying, oh, this is lovely, this is lovely. And I kept using the word for the Russian word that I thought meant lovely, which was skusnia. And it was only much later, they were laughing at me and I didn't realise why. And it was only later that I was told that it actually means delicious. So I was (laughs) going around the rooms going, this is a delicious bedroom, thank you. And this woman, yeah, she put me up and I I realised after a few days that she was having kind of male cousins to visit at night and I would hear the sounds of their congress through the thin walls and... It was it was a classic example of a child not really understanding what was happening, but wanting to be mature enough to cope. And I think, again, that was a pattern that defined a lot of my life subsequently, was that I became an inveterate people pleaser because it was the easiest way that I knew of to survive. And just to say, you know, at the end of that month, I, I then swapped houses. After two weeks, I stayed with a girl, a girl who was my age, Jana. I stayed with her family and they were really lovely to me and it felt a much safer space. 
it taught me a lot. It taught me how to eat things that I found disgusting because I, again, didn't want to offend my hosts and there was very little food. So one of the dishes that would come up again and again was a sort of bowl of gruel with, with chicken bones in the middle. And it taught me how to speak fluent Russian. I genuinely was fluent by the time I came back because it was total immersion. So I took my GCSE two years early and it taught me how to deal with experiences that you might not wish upon yourself. And in defense of my parents... I asked them about it recently because I wrote a piece about it for The Guardian after that conversation with my friend Olivia. And my mother said, you know, it was a different time and I'm not sure that I would do it again now. And my father said, the greater risk is not to take the adventure. And we felt that you could cope. And, you know, I think I'm I'm very grateful for that experience. I'm not sure that in these times, if I had a child, I would do the same thing. But it was something that really formed me. So I'm grateful for that. I've, I've forgotten all the Russian, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, can I ask, how come? Because you clearly were good at languages. Why did the Russian disappear? Surely it's there, latent somewhere. I, I like to say that it's there lying like a dormant volcano. And if I went back to Russia, it would all come back, sort of explode in an instant. But actually, I don't know if I am that good at languages because... I think it was, I was raised speaking French. My mother's originally from Switzerland. And so when you're raised speaking a language, it comes quite naturally. So I can speak French, but I don't think I was a natural linguist and I I was immersed in it and therefore I had to speak it. But as soon as I came back, because Russian is such a distinct language with an entirely different alphabet and there was no one that I could sort of practice my conversational skills on really, it, it just went quite quickly. I, I can remember one one or two words, one of which is Dostropomichatinisti, which is my favourite word, which means monuments or heritage. So <laughs> if I need to find out the way to a monument, I can do that. So you mentioned that, you know, you did go to boarding school in England and this would be for GCSEs or O-levels. They were GCSEs by then, weren't they? Yeah. And A-levels. And you, you really got into public debating, which is a big thing in a lot of schools and often a way that people find themselves making that transition into a kind of more public sense of performance. What did you enjoy about it? What difference did it make to you? It made a huge difference, actually, because having almost totally erased my voice, literally and metaphorically, what with Northern Ireland, then Russia, I then found myself in this English boarding school. And I realised I speak from a position of extreme privilege. Not everyone can escape from an unhappy school experience and go to an English boarding school. But I found there that I was totally accepted from day one because I spoke like everyone else. And it was so absurd to me because I hadn't grown up there and I didn't again I didn't know any of the rules and I used a lot of those experiences actually in my novel The Party there's uh, the protagonist also finds himself at this posh boarding school on a scholarship and has to kind of adapt very quickly Uh, but I still wasn't very confident even though I felt accepted I I, I didn't have that sense of self-worth and my English teacher Mrs Malhirish said you know I think you should try public speaking and debating And I thought she was crazy. And she's like, no, I see something in you and I think you should try it. And I did. And it was an unlocking of something for me because Mrs. Malhewish was incredibly supportive and taught me the skills necessary to appear confident, even if you don't feel it. One of her greatest tips to me was to smile even when you don't feel like it, because smiling before you begin speaking 
really wins an audience over. And I just learned all of these extremely helpful practical strategies. And it turned out that I was good at it and I liked being good at it and I liked the kind of approval I got for it. And so I ended up doing loads of debating and loads of Rotary Club public speaking, entering loads of competitions. And it really did. I'm not sure it gave me confidence, but it gave me the appearance of confidence. And it taught me that actually sometimes just by flexing that muscle, you can become the thing that you're pretending to be. That's really well put. You were really good at exams. You were clearly always a hard worker. And I look at just how much you've accomplished, you know, all the novels, the book, the podcast. Do you think that that being good at exams, being a natural hard worker, prepared you adequately for the world of work, the workplace? <laughs> no, in a short answer, no. And one of the interesting things that happened when I started doing my podcast, How to Fail, the first, se- the first couple of seasons, so many people would say to me that they felt the entire decade of their 20s were a failure. And it was really interesting to me. And I think it's because it's the first time for many of us, and it certainly was for me, that you are in the outside world without markers of exam success to monitor your progress. So you're in this adult life, which is bafflingly free of signposts, and no one is rewarding you for being a good adult. And it can feel like you're just at sea and that nothing is happening quickly enough. And that was the thing about being good at exams. Actually, I wasn't very good at exams when I was in my Belfast secondary school, but when I was happier, I did get better. And and I did work hard. That's the other thing that I just say is that I'm not sure that any of this is like innate skill. <laughs> I, I, I've always worked really, really hard for things. And then I realized when I became a journalist that working hard did not always guarantee the outcome that you most desired. And I spent eight years as a star feature writer on The Observer, which I had thought would be my dream job in many ways. And actually, I spent those eight years. There were wonderful things about it. And I wrote some of the pieces I'm most proud of. But it was eight years of being an inveterate people pleaser and trying to please my employers and saying yes to everything and saying yes to overtime and never once kicking up a fuss, never making a complaint, never asking for a pay rise, which I find shocking now looking back in the hopes that I would eventually be rewarded and that they would intuit what I wanted and that they would promote me or I would do something different or I'd get closer to the goal that I wanted. And it took me a really long time to realise that that wasn't going to happen and that instead of waiting for someone to reward me or to give me the kind of metaphorical A-grade exam result, I I needed to find that for myself. And, and that's what ended up happening. I went freelance. Do you know, it's so interesting. When I was a reporter at Channel 4 News, I was always going out to do the story about A-level results every year. And girls were always doing better and better. And the gap of attainment was always widening. And after about three years, I just thought, how come how come I never see this translating into the workplace? Like women are suddenly overtaking men on salaries. And then I realised, and it's the biggest thing I tell girls when I go to speak in, uh, to, in schools, is it's a big lie, this yeah. idea that A-levels, they get you the grades, but life isn't like that. You could argue life should be more like that. I think there's a big case to say life should be more like that. But I think just like you, I think a lot of us realise in our 20s that we weren't told the whole truth. Well, definitely. And I also, I, you know, I'm not one of those people who will take to Twitter every year and be like, don't worry if you don't get the A-level grades you wanted because, you know, I got a D and I'm fine. Because I actually think that that's really undermining for all the hard work that A-level students do. I'm a massive advocate of saying, 
try your best and try your hardest and if having tried your hardest and your best you fail at something that does not make you a failure it means that you will have learned something instructive from that and I totally agree with you and I also just want to pay tribute to you because you have done an immense amount showing other women like me that you can tackle unfairness and you can win and that actually by speaking up and speaking out you are not diminishing yourself you're not making yourself difficult you're not making yourself unemployable you're actually just stating the facts about what you deserve through the lens of equality and that's all that we're asking as women as uh, people who represent a minority you know black women in publishing like all we're asking for is a level playing field in terms of equality of opportunity well, I know. I mean, there's one thing I want people who haven't heard me bang on about this before is just ask for equal pay at the beginning and just yes. keep asking and ask your male colleagues. And of course, I found that most male colleagues would share as well. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I actually want to take you back a bit because journalism is where you started and your first job was actually on the Evening Standard, the London paper, the Gossip Diary, which usually means, you know, hanging out at parties, befriending celebrities. I think you've said yourself, you know, to kind of get little tidbits for stories. How easy was that for you in your first job? It wasn't easy, but I was so grateful for Mrs. Malhewish and everything I'd learned from debating because I ne- because you're right that actually the job involved going to parties in the evening and sort of film premieres and stuff, which sounds incredibly glamorous, but actually you only ever go on your own. You don't know anyone and your express purpose for being there is to try and find a sort of entertaining news tidbit that will make the next day's paper, which is really difficult to do. So I spent a lot of time 
sort of smiling inanely and, and hoping that I didn't, you know, I, that I looked approachable. And I developed a tactic which was I, I came up with one question which would guarantee a some sort of news story if I asked it. And the question that I came up with was, who do you think will be the next James Bond? Because <laughs> British people... <laughs> are totally obsessed like even uh, whatever anyone says if yeah. they're a celebrity and they have an opinion about who will be the next James Bond that that is newsworthy so that's what I did I used to go along to these parties and I used to kind of g myself up in advance and uh, try not to feel t- too shy and nervous and I would go in I would make a beeline for someone that I recognized and I would ask them that question and, and that was my sort of strategy for, for getting through. But there were some amazing times. You know, I went to the first ever Lord of the Rings premiere and it was one of the massive privileges of being a journalist was that it gives you access into all of these rooms that you wouldn't have otherwise. And again, you know, I was I realised that I was an observer once again, like way back as I was as that schoolgirl in Belfast. I was kind of observing conversations and looking at how people interacted. And I found it completely fascinating. And I used a lot of that material in my later novels. So so nothing is wasted. As Nora Ephron famously said, everything is copy. And I guess you see with celebrities, you know, the ones who are actually decent human beings and the ones who aren't. Definitely. And I really do remember. <laughs> I really remember the ones who were mean to me. There, there, was, there was one... Tell us. Well, there was one male actor who took such offence when I asked him what he was wearing. And I was like, mate, you know women have been asked that for centuries. And it was at a film premiere. And I sort of did it deliberately because I was like, well, let me let me have a sort of equality of questioning, if nothing. Even if I don't have equality of pay, let me make the questions equal. And he was so offended and angry. And it was just, it was such an abuse of his power as well. Like he had all the power there and I was being perfectly nice to him. And then there was another time, this actually, I'm going to say who it was because he turned out to be really nice. I had to call up John Simpson, the veteran BBC journalist. And I was forced to do it by my editor and I had to ask him, I can't even remember what it was, but it was something sort of trivial and absurd. And I had to ask him up and he was clearly sort of on, I had to call him up and ask him, he was clearly on deadline. And he was a bit abrupt and put the phone down on me. And about 20 minutes later, my phone rang on my desk and I answered it. And he said, Elizabeth, it's John Simpson here. I just want to say, I'm so sorry. You called me to bad moments. I was like, oh, that's so nice of you. And and yeah, you really do kind of learn the good ones quite quickly. You do. I think it's there's something very interesting about people who are still nice, even when they're very, very famous. I want to slightly sidetrack because all the time that you're working as a journalist, of course, you know, you're paying your rent and you're living your life. And I, I thought it was really charming that you said you felt from a young age that you were really 32 inside <laughs> and you wanted security and maturity, you know, house share, a job, paying your rent. And when you got to 32, you felt, yes, this yeah. is my age. <laughs> why was that so important? I'm fascinated by that. I think it's largely because as a child because I grew up against a backdrop which was quite scary a lot of the time and completely beyond my control and then because I ended up being sent to Russia and boarding school and various things I I really yearned for a time when I would be in control of my own destiny where I would be able to earn my own money and pay my own rent and live where I wanted and not have to please anyone other than myself. And for me, 
that seemed like 32. <laughs> like 32 seemed like the time where I would know myself sufficiently and hopefully I'd be sufficiently established in my career that I would be able to do all of those things. And so it, well, it sort of turned out that way because I did feel at 32 that that really matched how I felt inside. And I think I still feel 32. <laughs> so yeah, it was just one no, of those, I bet you do. Yeah, it was just one of those things instinctively that, that I felt I was always too, I was always far more sensible than my years when I was younger that was something that I was told a lot of the time was how mature I was and I think part of the way that I dealt with chaotic situations was to lean into that maturity and I felt again that I would sort of be rewarded for that and people would think I was a sort of good person because I was grown up and I was handling things and so yeah that was why I always felt 32. That's a great, a great <laughs> attitude. I totally, I totally back that attitude. I'm going to ask you a bit more about um, your time at The Observer. I'm just thinking, you know, it was a dream job for, for anyone thinking about journalism, a feature writer in The Observer. You know, there were issues about how you felt, you know, pay and in terms of status didn't work. But I'm also interested in, in how you felt about the way you used your voice and how people wanted you to use your voice as an interviewer. Because yeah. interviews can have a lot of power, can't they? They can. So when I started out at The Observer, I was doing a lot of reportage features, which I love doing, a lot of sort of true crime, which I love doing, but they're also incredibly time consuming and they can be quite scary a lot of the time. And my first, my first job there was to go and track down a guy in Poland who had been accused of murdering his ex-girlfriend and then writing a novel about it. It was the most extraordinary story. So I did a lot of stuff like that. And it took me a few years to be given interviews. I spent a lot of time doing Q&As, which as you all know, Samira, are like verbatim basically you're sent to interview someone it's just as much work as a normal interview but when you write it for the paper it's just a transcription of the tape so it doesn't feel like you get any glory as a journalist so I I said yes to a lot of those and then eventually I started doing interviews and it was a very interesting time because I was I had that kind of privileged access again like I did at the Evening Standard where I would get to meet these celebrities and people that I'd admired for so long and I would get to fly to New York and interview Clint Eastwood and that was an incredible thing to be able to do. But when it came to writing up the interview I realise now that what I was trying to do was I was trying to write like writers I most admired who were also on the paper who were a bit older than me and just much better at doing it because they'd been doing it for longer and they were incredibly talented people and I tried to assume their style and of course that never really works because a reader can sniff out inauthenticity and it never felt fully comfortable and I felt like I lost a lot of humour in trying to write like that and after a while I just realised that that wasn't serving me. And so I relaxed a bit more into the kind of interviewer that I was. And the kind of interviewer that I was and am is I tend to be an interviewer who tries to not insert myself into the interview. I tend to believe that it's about the person that I'm meeting and it's about conveying the truth of that person to readers or listeners. So there wasn't a lot of personal pronouns in terms of like, I, I, I wasn't talking about myself. And generally, I find that humans are fascinating. And by and large, they're, they're doing their best. And generally, I would really like the people I interviewed. And it became a running joke in the office. I would come back from every interview I did. And someone would, a colleague would say, like, how, how were they? And I was like, actually, they were really nice. And then I would write up this interview. And I realized that they weren't very trendy at the time. That in many ways, 
I was being, I was perceived as being too kind and too much of a soft touch. And at the time, the Hatchet interview was enjoying a surge in popularity because those kind of interviews are sometimes extremely entertaining to read. They're extremely funny, but they're not that revealing. It's like a one-star review, isn't it? Yes, exactly, exactly. But sometimes they're not that revealing because the jokes get in the way of the truth. And I, I, it was that tension ultimately that I couldn't live with. And that's why I'm so glad that I did eventually go freelance. And I'm so lucky that what I do now with the podcast enables me to do exactly that kind of interviewing. And I think podcasting is the perfect format for it because the person that you're talking to hopefully feels reassured that what they're saying won't be taken out of context and edited in a certain way and written up in a certain way with the journalist's own personal perspective. It is literally just their voice. I feel this is getting a bit meta. I know it is, isn't it? Sorry. (laughs) I want to ask about your move to LA. You moved to Los Angeles after the end of your marriage. And as someone who's lived there myself, I think it's a city that's often misunderstood. It's, It's a city that all kinds of creative refugees and writers going back to the 1930s have found is the place where they find themselves. It was the right place for you to heal, wasn't it? Oh, it totally was. And I totally agree with everything you just said. I'm obsessed with the history of LA and Hollywood because it is a city founded on the notion that you can tell your own story and you can tell other people's stories. And that's a noble thing to do. That's what the film industry is. That's why I found it an incredibly creative, stimulating and healing place because I felt understood as a writer. People just accepted that I was a writer. I wasn't seen as the journalist on The Observer. I wasn't seen as my ex-husband's plus one. I was seen just purely on my own terms and people accepted that I had come there and I had a history that I didn't necessarily want to talk about. That was fine. That was embraced in LA. And, And as well, you know, the weather is incredible. The way of life is very focused on health if you want it to be and I just felt better than I had done for years and I I find it a very very creatively stimulating place and I still go there now to do when I when I have a tight deadline I need to finish a book I will go there and I will write in the patio of my favorite cafe which is the coffee bean which is basically in if anyone knows it's the one in Los Feliz on Hillhurst yeah it's a very kind of unglamorous location, but I love it because you sit in the sunshine and you get a tan while you type and you overhear all these conversations about screenwriters who are sort of pitching. And then there's the overspill from the local Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And it's just this incredible smorgasbord of human experience. So I loved it. And it was a really important place for me to go, as you say, after my divorce, because I was confronted with a blank canvas and I didn't know what I was going to do next and LA was a really good place to spend some time while I found out and they love sexy English accents (laughs) yes speaking of which yes very true (laughs) that's such a good point because for so long I'd hated my accent and there in LA it was like cultural currency (laughs) yeah you've written very beautifully and funnily about trying online dating and I what's always the, the one that runs overhead is the man who posted a profile picture of himself posing at Auschwitz in front oh of the gate God. that said Arbeit macht frei yeah. <laughs> how did you regard that experience in finding yourself or did you just put it down to it's journalistic experience in the end no I well everything is copy and my mother always used to say like even if you're having a terrible time at least you can put it in a novel sometime and I always think of that I have to say just quickly I did not go on a date with that man who posed outside Auschwitz but it was just (laughs) it was just astonishing what people chose as their dating profile photos it was a very you know what I'm again I'm extremely grateful for that experience because I spent from the age of 19 to 36 in a series of long-term monogamous relationships culminating in a marriage that failed 
And when I was in a couple, I always used to think, oh, how lovely to go on dates. What fun. (laughs) And I think that that's what people think when they're in a couple. Actually, when you're out there in the wilderness of online dating in your late 30s, it is an absolute nightmare, some of it anyway. Um, And I found it enormously instructive, a fund of hilarious anecdotes, which again, for a writer, is just absolute catnip. And And I was aware of it almost at the time that I was just storing up kind of humorous stories that I would be able to use prime amongst them the man who stayed over and brought a camp bed to my flat one night because he complained that my mattress was uncomfortable <laughs> and uh sort of rolled off after our moment of intimacy and just like slept slept on this camp bed that he then rolled up the next morning and left and we broke up shortly afterwards but actually it is true what people say that every single one of those failed dates was an exercise in data acquisition it, it taught me so much about what I wanted in someone who I was as a person. It taught me how to deal with rejection, which is a great way of building up emotional resilience. And by the time I met my now wonderful boyfriend and I met him online, I met him on Hinge, I was ready for it. I was ready because I knew who I was and I knew what I wanted and I wasn't apologetic about it. But just quickly, Samira, because we've been talking about LA, I had lost so much hope in online dating that the, the morning of the evening that I met my boyfriend, for the first time, I had booked flights to move to LA permanently. I was like, there's nothing here for me. I'm going to move to LA. That's what I'm going to do. And there was something about that, that clearly like there was an energetic shift attached to booking those airline tickets. And then I met the man who is now my wonderful partner and my life changed. And I think everything that I've learned about finding my voice has made me realize that for me, it serves me to be able to react to things and to be quite flexible and not necessary to work in a nine to five office environment, not necessary to have a set in stone five year future plan, but to react to things as and when they happen, because that's the source of sort of true fulfillment. I hope you got a refund on those flights. I did. Yes, don't worry. <laughs> Just checking. That's important. The, the How to Fail podcast, which has been such a phenomenon. How did you come to create it? And when did you realise it had really hit an, a sort of a nerve in a way with, with listeners? Well, interesting that we should be talking about online dating because the reason I launched the podcast was because I got dumped. So after my divorce, it took me a while to start dating again. And then I got into a, a long-term relationship with a different man. And that relationship ended out of the blue for me three weeks before my 39th birthday. And I felt really bleak in the aftermath of that. And I think it's because a lot of the emotional scaffolding that I directed after the divorce to enable me not to look at the wreckage beneath had sort of come tumbling down. So I I was confronting what felt like a very lonely future where my 30s had been a decade of intense transition. I had got married, then divorced. I had tried and failed to have babies. And now this new relationship had come to an end. And with it, my hopes of having my own biological child were also vanishing. And I went to LA for a month to finish, to meet a book deadline. I was ghostwriting a memoir. And during that time, I was listening to a lot of podcasts because listening to pop music made me feel too sad. (laughs) And classical music was just entirely heartbreaking. And I was also having a lot of conversations with my female friends out there about 
about what happens when we lose something that we thought we loved. And I realised that for all those points that my life hadn't turned out according to my plan, I'd actually grown enormously in strength and I'd got to know myself a lot better. So those things came together and I started to think, wouldn't it be great if we opened up these conversations about failure to a wider audience? And why don't I try doing a podcast? And really, when you asked me when I realised that it had hit a nerve, it was when I put the first episode out. And I had really done it for myself, I have to say. Like, I knew it was a good idea, but I didn't know how much resonance it would have until that first episode went live in July 2018. And I'm very lucky in that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a very good friend of mine, so she was my first guest. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. There were thousands of downloads overnight and I was really, really astonished. And then it's just grown and grown since then. And and I think what it showed me was two things. One was we were yearning for conversations about failure and vulnerability because our society the cultural age that we now live in, it feels like there's vanishingly little opportunity to fail. We're all meant to be living these perfect Instagrammable lives. And the second thing it showed me was that when I was open about my own vulnerabilities, the things that I thought of as my unique shame and failures actually turned out to have the most universal resonance. And and that was a really beautiful gift for me. And I feel very accepted now for the person I really am rather than the person I was trying all those years to be. Is there a favourite interview that you've done or a favourite story of theirs that really, from all the many ones that you have, that really resonates for you? Yeah, I interviewed a man called Mo Gaudat in season four of How to Fail. And he is the former chief business officer of Google X. So they're the kind of moonshot factory that comes up with ideas for balloon powered internet and stuff like that. And he was a tremendously successful man. Um, but at some point in his early 30s, he realized he wasn't happy. So he spent 12 years devising an algorithm for happiness. And he came on the podcast to talk about that. And he talked a lot about how you you are separate from your most anxious thoughts, how you exist separately from your brain. A couple of months ago, I was in Montreal. I had an argument with my daughter, Aya. We're always best friends, right? We had a little argument and I was walking the streets back from her place to my place. And the first thing that comes to my mind is my brain says, Aya doesn't love you anymore. I literally stopped in the middle of the street and said, what did you just say? How can you come up with that claim? Where did that come from, brain? Why are you telling me this? Do you have evidence for what you're telling me? Basically, is your brain really that reliable if you let it loose? Or does it take us to places and make us unhappy and make us suffer for no reason whatsoever? And he has this wonderful tactic, which is he names his brain. So he calls his name Becky after the most annoying girl at his school who was always pointing out when things would go wrong rather than things going right. And he gave this example of how he had an argument with his daughter one day and he was walking down the street afterwards and his Becky brain was saying, you're a, you're a failure as a parent. She doesn't love you anymore. And he stopped himself in the street and he said, Becky... I would like you to present me with your objective evidence for that assertion. Because if you don't have objective evidence, I want you to take that negative thought and replace it with a positive one. And in that way, he says, you can train yourself to be happier, to think more positively. And he gave me this astonishing example of how he had applied it to tragedy in his own life. 
So Mo's 21-year-old son, Ali, died during a routine operation and it was utterly devastating. It's the most devastating thing that I think can happen to a parent. And he said that in the weeks after Ali's death, he would wake up every morning and he would be in tears. And his first thought would be, Ali died. And after a few weeks of this, he thought he was still waking up, still waking up in tears, still thinking Ali died. But he increased the length of that sentence and he added, yes, but he also lived. And in that way, he was able to live with his grief. And he changed the way that I thought about things and has honestly changed my life for the better. So that would probably be my most favourite one. It's quite late in your book that you write about this, but you talk about female anger, how history has not been kind to angry women. And it actually made you wonder a bit, I mean, you wrote about it very well, but it also made you wonder a bit if you were still wary of feeling you could talk about anger. Um, How important is anger, do you think, in the way that you use your voice now? See, this is why you're so good at what you do, because that's such an astute question, because you're right that the anger chapter is late on in the book. And it's because I didn't think I was, I didn't, I had no plans to write it. So when I put together the proposal, I had all of the chapter headings, anger was not in there, which is hilarious when you consider that when I wrote that chapter, it's all about how women suppress their anger and are taught to suppress their anger by a society that deems it uncomfortable, hysterical, crazy, and sidelines it and marginalizes marginalizes our experience of righteous fury. Um, And it just came to, I just started writing it and I started to realize how angry I had been all those times when I thought I was sad, all those times when I thought I was Uh, losing or that I was failing actually a lot of it had been informed by anger that I had failed to express and um, I actually really loved writing that chapter so I didn't have any kind of fear about it I felt fueled honestly that that anger chapter came most easily of the entire book I just felt fueled by all of these things that I wanted to say and it, it just happened to coincide with the publication of a phenomenal book in America called Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister, which is, yeah, a history of the revolutionary power of of female anger. And it just made me realise that female anger can be used in so many ways to change the world that we live in. And that's why we've been taught to be scared of it. And that's why we've been taught to be uncomfortable with it. And how great it would be if we raised young girls not just to feel that they have to be kind and nice and pliable and make other people feel comfortable, but if we could also raise them to be assertive and to be in tune with how they feel when things go wrong and to just tap into that power, because it is power. So it taught me a lot writing that chapter. And now I'm furious all the time. (laughs) Good, I'm glad to hear it. Oh, Elizabeth, it's been so lovely talking to you. I hesitate to think of you as this, but you're almost like a failure guru. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because you've you've absorbed so much I love the idea of data accumulation as well that listening to all these people's stories does give you insight and it's actually how you choose to to use that information that does give you wisdom without actually having to be a genius yes instinctively well I think it's what I've always done I've sort of accumulated other people's knowledge and then (laughs) and then I mean that's sort of what I do I think as a communicator and actually it's so interesting that this podcast has been about finding my own voice because I think I've only found it through listening to the voices of others. And 
And that's been a really wonderful thing that I've been able to do throughout my professional life. And I just really have valued the chance to talk about it. And thank you. It's very intimidating being interviewed by you, Samira. Oh, but it was no, a joy. Should, oh, I hope not. I hope no, it should be intimidating. Because you were saying all these things about how you tried to interview. I thought, oh, that's what I try and do. But I hope I haven't failed. You're not intimidating. Your reputation is intimidating. Oh, You're I lovely. Oh, well. Uh, well, it's absolutely been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. 